welcome to Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Glazeville, where we dig more deeply into the passage that we looked at on Sunday. I'm David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. On Sunday, we looked at Jeremiah chapters 30 to 34 and a promise to hold on to. We saw in the midst of darkness and destruction that there is a hope that gives us a confidence of something that we cannot see a hope that reassures us while staring existential terror in the face, a hope that is set in the midst of darkness, and that hope finds its fulfilment in Jesus Christ. Dave, thanks so much for opening God's Word for us. My pleasure. Thanks, Mandy, for that introduction. Actually, let me do a reveal here. You can get away with a lot when you're uh, on audio. Mandy's actually not here right now. <laughs> that was recorded yesterday. Uh, we actually worked out that we were going to run out of time and not be able to do this. But I found some extra time this Tuesday morning. So I thought, well, look, I'll put it together uh, while Mandy's off at her Bible study group. So um, uh, w- welcome to a kind of a, a cameo version of uh, Sermon Seasonings. We'll see how we go. It, it's I'm flying solo. Um, here's some of the things that I thought we would talk about today. Uh I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the very beginning of chapters 30 to 34 and the nature of, of prophecy, and actually uh, that that's going to help lead us into thinking about a different lens from through which we can look at these verses. Then what I thought would be interesting to do is there's a lot in these verses about uh, Jerusalem and the city of David, and so I thought, well, let's actually understand what Jerusalem's all about. Let's talk about the theology of Jerusalem. How about that? And then I thought we might have a look at some really encouraging and uh, exciting Jesus stuff that's in here. And then I thought we might finish by looking a little bit about promise and fulfillment. So that's where we're going to go. So let me start by talking about prophecy. Now, in chapter 30, verse 1, you know, it to go in Hebrews verse 1, it talks about the fact that God has revealed himself in the past through prophets in many kinds and in various ways. Well, you get many of those ways in the book of Jeremiah. We've got the yoke stuff. We've got the performance prophecy. There's a really interesting one later on where he gets a scroll and throws it in a river and you're thinking, what is that about? Well, you'll have to wait. But, um, but this section here with these great promises begins in chapter 30 uh, verse 1 with this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. So he's not saying all of these words of wonderful words of promise, uh, I want you to go now into the temple while you're surrounded by the Babylonian armies and preach to people and say, basically, yes, they're going to take over, but, you know, there's good news at the end. No, he's not saying to preach it. He's saying write it in a book. Now, um, that's interesting. You think, well, why would you write a prophecy in a book? What does that do? Well, I think it does a couple of things. One of the things that it does is it underlines the fact that this is to be kept as a record. It is, it's not that God's words are impermanent, but there is something about something being written on a scroll, and you'll see this in many of the prophecies, including in, in the book of Revelation, this idea of a, of a prophecy being written on a scroll. And, uh, and that there's a sense that it is preserved, it is, uh, it is a hard copy, you, you, the words are right there, the words can be reread, and that's part of the point as well, is that these are words that are to be read at a later time. And so the, uh, the, the words are written in a book so that later on the exiles can read that book and be reminded of the great promises that God said long ago, and even when they come about that um, they will go, there it is, 
it, it was written in paper. So the very same way that we often look at some of the amazing uh, fulfilments that we see uh, of the Old Testament prophets in the life of Jesus and in many other things, where we go, wow, I mean, you can actually go to Jerusalem and other museums around the world and see copies of these prophecies that predate the things that clearly fulfill them. And, uh, and so it's that same kind of idea, put this on paper because I'm making a call and I'm going to fulfill it. So that's just an interesting kind of beginning to that. But that leads me on to the second thing I want to say, and that is that there's another lens that we could actually look through these same chapters of 30 to 34. So the one we looked at on Sunday was we looked at these this juxtaposition of of the worst the, the the imminence of the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of God's people. You know, they're being they're under siege. They're pro, it's promised that they will be overtaken and destroyed by the Babylonians and taken off into exile. The, the, even that very worst moment, that's when the messages of hope come. And so the lens we looked through is the wonderful contrast um, that in this darkest moment God gives these great words of hope. But there's another lens through which we could look at these same chapters um, based on that same juxtaposition of a besieging army and a message of hope, and that is that it's about grace. So you see how those two things work together. There's, there is grace all through this because why were the armies there? The armies were there because of Judah's sin, that uh, this was the punishment of God from, for all that they had done. And it is in that context that you look at these same verses and you get these amazing promises. And at no point are those promises, um, well, virtually at no point are those promises linked to any behavior at all on behalf of God's people. These are just God working volitionally out of the, literally the kindness of his heart. So let me read to you um, uh, the bit at the end of chapter 30. So it, the bit where it says, there's no one to please your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. Um, you know, Why do you cry out over your wound? Verse 15 of chapter 30. Uh, because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. And then verse 16, 17 but all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil, but I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord, because you are called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares. So why is God doing this? He's not doing it because of anything they have done. It is because of their great sin that the judgment was coming. So it, it is a case of the God of his own uh will chooses to show his grace and restore a people that deserved the very punishment they were getting and did you see that bit at hear that bit at the end because you are called an outcast zion for whom no one cares god says i will not have it said that i do not care for my people this is completely an act of love from god there you could equally pre- preach an entire sermon on this section that really emphasizes the grace of God's salvation and his restoration of sinful people. Um, so another part is is if we skip ahead to chapter 31, uh, it, it's a message to, uh, to Ephraim. It says, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. And when you read of the Lord's compassion in the Old Testament, it is often linked to his mercy, to his grace. And so why, why is, is God going to, um, to 
to to promise the return of Ephraim, even the Northern Kingdom, it's because his heart yearns for him. He it is it is a response of grace, undeserved favor that God of His own choice chooses to bestow. Um, and perhaps the biggest part is if you have a look at Jeremiah chapter thirty-two. Um, this is where you get a longer explanation of. Uh, how bad evil, how bad and evil Judah has been to deserve God's judgment, and then you suddenly see this switch get flicked where they become recipients of amazing grace. So, um, chapter thirty-two, verse thirty: The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made. Declared the Lord, from the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah, those living in Jerusalem. That's pervasive, isn't it? Uh, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen to or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such detestable thing and make and so make Judah sin. So you could not get a darker indictment of the people. And then he goes on, You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I'll bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I'll give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and their children after them. I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and soul. What? <laughs> There's this huge indictment of their horrible sin and then God says it with outstanding passion and, and to through no act of theirs at all that he will restore them and save them and that he will give this new covenant notice the permanence of this new covenant and we'll talk a little bit reference this a little bit later this is not that they will never turn away from me it's an everlasting covenant right so this is pointing to some really significant thing that will mean there is never any straying again and we're going to see that that uh, is not fulfilled in the time of Israel's history from between this and when Jesus turned, it is completely pointing us to Christ and to what he is going to do and to the, and to the, to the bringing in of the new covenant that happens through him. Um, so you see there's just a astounding, astounding grace throughout this um, chapter. And so my encouragement to you would be is have a read of it, think about hope, maybe have a reread of it and just look for the grace that is soaked in the whole section. Now, the other thing that I thought would be really good to talk about is uh, while we're talking about the Messiah and we're talking about um, uh, Jerusalem, there's so much of these promises that are focused in on Jerusalem. So I thought, let's talk about what is it? What is Jerusalem in the Bible? You might have also heard this expression, Zion. What's, what's Zion? Right. Well, 
let me tell you the story of the history of it. You go back to early 2 Samuel, uh, and so David David's the king, and at the moment he's been, when he first becomes king, you might remember from our time in 1 Samuel, he actually lives in a place called Hebron. Uh, but now... He then, with the help of his uh, his troops, again, you can actually go to Jerusalem these days and you can go um, underground under the city of David where they've excavated and you can see where David climbed up to get into the Canaanite citadel of Jebus. So the Jebusites, you might have heard of them. That That's Jerusalem, okay, um, or what became Jerusalem. And, uh, and so that's where David... Um, snuck in and got into the city, and then they conquered it. And when he conquers it, it's called, it becomes the city of David. It becomes Zion. So the fortress of Zion is Jerusalem. It's the part of Jerusalem that is the city of David, which is a spur um, just to the south of the uh, of Temple Mount, and it's called the city of David. So you know the the um, once in Royal David's city stood a lonely cattle shed uh, where a baby for a manger laid its head or something. Uh, Sorry, that's wrong. The city of David's not Bethlehem. Just hear that. The city of David is not Bethlehem. Bethlehem is 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 where David came from. It was a place of his birth, but it's not the city of David. The city of David is Jerusalem. In fact, the city of David as an expression turns up 42 times throughout the Old Testament. So when Jerusalem is being spoken about, it's not just the capital city. It's not just the big city. It is the city where God's anointed Messiah is, right? So the theology of Jerusalem is the theology of the royal city. It is not just... So So when we're understanding what is Jerusalem pointing to and when we're thinking about the new Jerusalem that descends in, in Revelation chapter 21, what's the imagery there? It's not the place of God's people. Because the land is the place of God's people. The, the, the place of God's people is, is more generic Jerusalem is specifically where God's people are with God's king in the middle of it and God in the middle of it, right? So it's it's not just a city. It's a city gathered around the Lord and his Messiah. And and so the theology of, of the rebuilding of Jerusalem is not just a referencing to the people of God, but to the people of God gathered around his Messiah. It is, it is a messianic city and so the restoration of that city comes with the messiah that's what jerusalem is all about and so that's why when when we see it it, it is why jesus had to die there right he didn't die in galilee he didn't get crucified in you know on the coastal plain no he gets crucified outside the gates of the city of the king of whom you know, which of course he is the Davidic king, and so uh, the the tying together of the imagery of Jerusalem and Messiah that they're inseparable, and at the same time the temple is in the middle of it. So you can start to see how Jesus fulfills all of it. Jesus fulfills the temple. Jesus fulfills the city. Jerusalem has no meaning without Jesus in it, because he's the Davidic king, and Jerusalem is irrelevant without the king there. So um. So I thought that might be interesting for you to think through. And and so as you study Jeremiah 30 to 34 and, and you read about Jerusalem, I want you to think this, the significance of this is the, is it's the seat of the Davidic king. Uh, the next thing I thought is while we're talking about the Davidic king, that we might actually have a look at some of the bits we didn't get to look at on Sunday that are wonderfully 
messianic. And, uh, and I think if you get a chance to, sometimes we, our heads go so quickly to Jeremiah 31, reasonably, the wonderful promise of the new covenant, is, is that um, we sometimes can skip over Jeremiah 30. And there are some wonderful promises here. So let me read to you from verses 18 of chapter 30. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace, notice that? The palace, because the palace is there because it's the royal city, right? And the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I'll add to their numbers, they will not be decreased. I'll bring them honour and they will not be disdained. The children will be as in days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. And then there's this interesting rhetorical question at the end of verse 21. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? And when you, you, when you look at that knowing the end of the story and the Messiah who is the beloved son, you get your answer to, for who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? God the son, you know, um, declares the Lord. And so verse 22, so you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. So the judgment's going to come. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you'll understand this. So what's the, what are the, the purposes of God's heart? Fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. That is when the anger will cease, and that is when the restoration, the wonderful restoration that he's just spoken about, is going to come about. And listen to the, another enigmatic ver, um, sentence at the end of verse 24. In days to come, you will understand this. Now, this is something that you won't get, but there will be a time in the future that you'll look back and you're going, ah, this is what Jeremiah was talking about. This is when the Lord achieves, accomplishes the purposes of his heart and has a king over his people who rules with righteousness and who is close, um, like, like David, but even more, close to the Lord himself, one who is actually a God after, uh, a, a king after God's own heart. And so you see this wonderful messianic promise here. Um, and then you get the reaffirmation of it in chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I'll be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. So at that time, in other words, the time when the purposes of God's heart will be accomplished with the Messiah is when all the families of, uh, of, of God will be my people. Um, and, and then straight after that in chapter 31, verse 2, you've got this is what the Lord says, the people who survive the sword will find fl- favour in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. And it's hard not to think of Matthew, who seems to quote Jeremiah a fair bit when he says, when he tells us of Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That rest comes with this wonderful Messiah who is Jesus. So it's a lovely little seed of of messianic hope, isn't it? Um, And here's another one. Chapter 31, verse 15. So you might remember, so the other reference, by the way, in case you're looking at it, was uh, Matthew chapter 11. 
But we get another reference from Matthew that gets quoted here as well. And that um, it comes from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then we get this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. And so um, when does Matthew quote that section about a voice is heard in Rama? Uh, tragically, when when uh, the, the, the Holy Family, when, when Jesus, Mary and Joseph flee off to Egypt because Herod, they get word that Herod is going to do some pretty wicked stuff to the people of um, of, of, of Bethlehem. And, uh, and so when Herod does his business and massacres the children there, we get this quotation of Jeremiah. And so if you're going then, if you're hearing this quotation, then you're going, all right, so what's the context of that? that, that that's what happens immediately um, before uh, the, the promise of the return. And so the massacre, is, it's not just saying, oh, here's a bit in the Old Testament which talks about people crying. It's about people crying before the promised return. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was actually a bit of understanding how promise leads to fulfilment in the scriptures. That sounds like it'll be really helpful, Dave. Where did you come from? Um, <laughs> You've suddenly um, appeared out of nowhere. Um, I'm, I'm back for the final last point. So promise and fulfilment. How does it work? Yeah, because one of the one of the things you no doubt have seen is that you get these wonderful promises in this section of Jeremiah and you get them fulfilled in a way that you go, well, is that really fulfilled? It's It's got the broad outline but not, not the magnitude. So one of the points that I made on Sunday was how the terror that was surrounding them was almost matched and exceeded by the size of the promises, mm. the, just just how huge the promises were. They won't say, no, eventually you'll come back and you'll eke out an existence, right? Yeah. It, it's, they're really big promises. And and then if you look at the return it, as it happened, yeah, well, a, lo- a lot of the promises that you read in Jeremiah were fulfilled, but they only seem to sort of be fulfilled. They, they, yes, there's a new temple. Yes, there is Jer- um, Jerusalem. Yes, the Davidic king returns, in, in, well, at least the descendant, in Zerubbabel yep. and his descendants. Um, but it doesn't look the same. Yep. Um, and this is where we've got to understand the nature of, of prophecy. Now, the first thing is what's, for those who know these things, um, hermeneutic. What is yep. our way of reading the scriptures? Well, there's a really helpful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is a section that I read out uh, in answer to a question at night. I said, um, but it tells us how we, that the Bible itself says, guys, it all points to Jesus. Yep. Right? So let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For, this is an important bit, so this is for your memory, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So Christ mm. is God's yes, I have fulfilled all of my promises are found in him. And so through him, the amen, so be it, um, is spoken to us by the glory of God, um, to the glory of God. Uh, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. 
He uh, anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Mm. So it's all pointing us to Jesus. So so perhaps the way of of picturing it is like this. So you, you let's say you go to the Himalayas for the first time. Sounds good. I, I really want to do that. That is hmm. definitely on my bucket list actually. Um, when COVID's dealt with. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I'm getting my final vaccination tomorrow. Yay. Um, anyway, so, so back to the story. You're going into the Himalayas for the first time. You, you, you know basically what... Everest looks like, but you're going on a trek, yeah. and you walk. And but you you live in Australia, so the biggest thing you've seen is the lump that we called Mount Kosciuszko. <laughs> so you're walking along on this wonderful, wonderful trek, and then you walk around the corner of one of these steep Himalayan valleys, and you see this white triangular mountain that yeah. looks humongous sitting right in front of you, and you go, "Oh wow, this is this is the 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 Everest that I've yeah. so long." wanted all my life to see and then you keep tracking and keep tracking and then the 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 valley sort of bends around and then you go around the side of it and all of a sudden that big mountain is beside you and now in the past and you look and realize that off in the distance is one that is way bigger than what you yeah. thought was a huge mountain, but it was probably only you know five and a half or six thousand meters instead of nearly nine thousand meters, which is the big massive shape behind. It's yeah. because they basically the first one when it was sitting in front of the other mountain, you couldn't see the other mountain. Yeah, um, and it's just that when you when you come up to that, and so it's kind of like that with prophecy. That you get this promise that, oh, we're going to return and and you're going to have Jerusalem rebuilt and things like that. And so you then see it kind of happening and you go, oh, okay, this is good. This is God answering his promises. But if you look back at the promise, like you might look back to your description of Everest and mm. go, oh, I thought it'd be bigger than that. Um, it is kind of the way you look at prophecy. I thought that prophecy would be bigger than that. Well, yeah. it is it going is. to be bigger than that. That that fulfilment or that partial fulfilment is the way, of, say, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. It 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 in a sense um, preserves the promise and keeps the promise on the agenda, remembering that this is what God said He'd do in the yeah. past. Yay, He's done it. But no, He hasn't. It's it it fulfill. It has the same basic shape, but doesn't have the fullness and the size. Yeah. At that is only what comes with Jesus, who actually is the fullness and size of it. He he is he is God dwelling among us. Mm. He is the risen king. He is um, the embodiment even of the people of God. He's yeah. all of these promises fulfilled in him. And then what we see is that promise begun in the fullness of Christ. But then we have, even then, even though he's still the, the, the real deal, yeah. there's this... Because we see him, we know that there is this greater future that is to come. And so that's when you get the, the, the language of Revelation that talks about the what we would call the ultimate fulfillment, yep. where the things that Christ has established are fully realized when the old order of things passes away. And so, of course, you get that magnificent image of Jerusalem descending like a bride dressed for her husband, the yep. Messiah, because it's the Messiah's city, yep. um, and the place where there is peace and where there's all of those wonderful things that, that, that the, the experienced realization mm. of it, um, we can know is going to happen in the future because it has happened concretely in the past. Yeah. Yep. So hopefully that image helps. Yeah, I think it's a great image because it is that picture of the that Jesus is is everything, but yet we even know in looking at him that we've got more of that to experience when we actually, when he returns mm. and when uh, we're no longer in this kind of now but not yet that we're living in, when we're actually in the fully realised um, 
complete forgiveness of sins that that separation has occurred I can no longer sin, you can no longer sin, and mm. Jesus actually is the full picture of everything and we see that the promises are even bigger than what we even thought they might have been. Yeah, it's, it's, and, it, and then that fills you with, with amazing joy, joy and, and hope. Yeah. So um, there we go. That's our little cameo of, uh, of Sermon Seasonings for this week. Uh, I've been Dave. Uh, and I've been Mandy. Uh, next week we'll be back uh, looking at Jeremiah chapters 36 to 39 and thinking through the judgment, and we'll have Andrew with us. Awesome. See you next week. See you next week.